Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Ferry Mess. We look into the ongoing challenges at BC Ferries as once again commuters are left to deal with morning cancellations. Plus, Solicitor General Mike Farmer joins us to discuss the ongoing Surrey policing challenges and what happens next. And we get the latest on the never-ending Massey Tunnel Sag. That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Joining me now is our Jerry Mary Judson. How are you today? Oh, you know, I'm stay, trying to stay dry. <laughs> it's, uh, it's quite something out there. It's uh, boy, howdy. How many years now have you been in BC? Three. We're, we just finished three years in beautiful British Columbia. Three years in British, yes. beautiful British Columbia. <laughs> and you arrived here from Alberta, from, from Calgary. Calgary, Alberta. You know, that is a sunny place. And this is not a sunny are place. You, <laughs> are you used to this kind of overcast kind of day? Yet, uh, I'm, I'm, get, I'm getting there. I don't get the appreciation, but I'm, I'm getting there. I... Uh, I have a good umbrella. It's it's fine. I think this might be the year. I say this every year, but this might be the year that I get one of those seasonal affective disorder, those sad lights from the pharmacy. I might do it. I might pull the trigger. Really? Yeah, because I think that maybe my maybe my mood would be better, and I think that would benefit everybody in the office <laughs> if Jerry was but not is bombed. It, is it uh, like we're so used to it here, and it it can get depressing around January, oh, especially just a little, just bit. a little, yeah. When you've no daylight either, like even yeah. when the sun is out, it is light for two seconds and it's sunset but, again. But you feel it impacts you, like just this dreary, mm-hmm. overcast rain, maybe you know all that sort of yes, thing. Yes, just it, a little bit. If, it's like, a little bit. If the clouds, the sky's not very big. If the clouds come down really far and that's my thing and the fairies the sky is really big but that's okay i'll be okay i had a a (laughs) friend from alberta as well many years ago and they bought a place up at sfu mountain oh yeah so in the clouds yeah in the clouds Mm -hmm. and uh, it snows there sometimes when it doesn't snow down here right so yeah similar thing yeah they did not appreciate they did not like being up there that's for sure where the hell is the sun (laughs) We should do a regular segment, you coming back and give oh, us a yes. sense of your mood today and why it's so bad. That's good. what the people care about is how is Jerry doing? Well, How's Jerry's just, mood? We'll make it kind of like a weather <laughs> forecast. Oh my God. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I'm G- down. Jerry cast. Jerry cast. There you go. There you go. All right. Now mm-hmm. we're going to talk a little bit about uh, more some serious. New, yeah. yes, a, a new confidential service. It's, it's legal advice that you mm-hmm. get for victims of sexual assault. assault. Tell absolutely. me about this. So it is called Stand Informed and it's actually interesting timing because about 10 Ten minutes ago, mm-hmm. uh, the government of British Columbia also announced that they are restoring funding that was cut for sexual assault programs and uh, that support survivors of sexual assault. So they're putting five new sexual assault centers in Vancouver, of course, Victoria, Kamloops, Prince George and Surrey with wraparound services for survivors. So this is a very weirdly timely conversation. But this is called Stand Informed and it's legal service started by the Community Legal Assistance Society. They've been around since the 70s, just providing, you know, cost effective and or free legal advice for folks, mm-hmm. um, giving that giving that access to that service. And it offers up to three free hours of confidential legal advice if you've experienced sexual assault at any time in British Columbia. So I talked to Jennifer Kaur. She's a supervising lawyer at the CLAS and the project manager of Stand Informed. And I asked her about how this project started. We also run another service called Sharp Workplaces. And under that program, we offer free legal advice to anyone who's experienced workplace sexual harassment. So what we saw were people reaching out to us who experienced sexual assault, but it wasn't within a workplace context. So we recognized that there was an issue and there really isn't an available service 
for people who've experienced sexual assault. We had some discussions with government uh, with respect to funding this program, which was great. It's our understanding also that the government was looking at supporting this. There was a pilot project actually back in 2017-18 that was done with Ending Violence Association of BC to pilot some limited legal advice services. So I think that this is partially a follow-up from that. We know that sexual assault is a significant underserved issue and underreported issue in uh, BC as well as across Canada with really 6% of people uh, reporting. And in British Columbia, 37% of women over the age of 15 have experienced sexual assault. Those are like not a uniquely horrifying and shocking statistic. So thank you for the work that you're doing. What are some of the, the barriers that do exist for, for folks who are looking to seek resources or as, as far as legal counsel after they've experienced something like that? People may certainly feel that they might not be believed or taken seriously. They might be worried about being re-traumatized through a criminal law process or other legal process. Often some people experience um, some shame and uh, fear. Of course, that's very concerning, and we want people to know that it's never their fault. Uh, of course, if someone does choose to pursue a process, there are definitely some costs with respect to that, and also it's quite stressful in terms of going through any sort of Process. How do I go about accessing this service? Is it as easy as a phone call? Is there a, is there a website? Yes, people can uh, reach out to us by calling our phone number 604-673-3143 or sending us an email at standinformed at net. Or if you have access to the internet, you can search for Stand Informed uh, Community Legal Assistance Society and you should be able to find our website, and we have an application form as well as some more information about our program. It, I think it's also important to know that we try to take a holistic trauma-informed approach to our work, so that does mean everyone is trained in trauma-informed approaches, so we understand how difficult this is. We don't want to re-traumatize people, so we we don't need to ask uh, details uh, with respect to what happened to you on an intake call. Um, you might want to share that with the lawyer, but even in that case, with the lawyers, uh, you can discuss um, how much really you need to share to get the legal advice uh, that we're able to provide. Uh, you know, this is just good news. It's just right? sad that it's, um, um, you know, more people don't know about it, but the numbers that, that are just... Uh, staggering. It was that 37% of women over the age of 15 yeah. um, have been sexually assaulted in our province. Only mm-hmm. 6%. There's 6% report rate. Yeah, that's uh, so those numbers are just absolutely effing awful. We need, you know, and it's, it's good that um, this service exists because also there is no income limit to access Stand Informed. You don't have to have reported it to the police. Uh, you can be any gender, any age, mm-hmm. and there's no statute of limitations either on like just talking and getting this legal advice. It mm-hmm. could have happened at any time. And even if you are undocumented or if you're here on a visa, and that might be why you're not hesitant to, to report what happened to you, you can go ahead and, and talk to the people at CLAS and Stand Informed. And uh, the, the number here, again, 
again if you need it is 604-673-3143 or you can email them at standinformed at net. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, today the uh, Ministry of Transportation Infrastructure sent out a press release, which I think generally wouldn't be covered uh, by most news organizations. It was just a, uh, they had requested uh, qualifications for three bid teams to have, which have been invited to participate in the next phase of procurement for the replacement of the George Massey Tunnel. Uh, and uh, they're moving ahead. Uh, they should have uh, the teams put together by early 2024. Now, at this particular point, the Massey uh, tunnel project uh, is set to be completed by 2030 with a budget of $4.15 billion and it'll be an eight-lane tunnel. And of course, as you all know, the uh, 10-lane bridge was cancelled when the NDP uh, formed government in 2017. Time now to catch up with what's happening out there in Richmond and Delta. Joining us now is Del- Dylan Kruger, who's a Delta City Councillor. Dylan, thank you for speaking to us today. Yes, thanks for having me. So I know this is small news in the grand scheme of things, uh, but I just wanted to get an update uh, from you. Uh, give me a sense of your community's overall feelings about uh, just where we're at in regards to the tunnel. Uh, is Has patience run thin or, or is there still a bit more patience waiting for this project to get going? <laughs> well, in relation to the news today, obviously any news with regards to moving this project forward is good news for our community. We always welcome that. It has been quite the saga. Uh, not, I'm going to be totally honest. It's been a, it's a, it's been ten years. It's been over ten years since the original uh, bridge project was announced uh, in 2013 by the former government. Uh, that project was cancelled uh, six years ago. So we're six years into this new uh, iteration in the immersed tube tunnel, uh, and our community is very anxious to have this project move forward. When we go door knocking in our community, uh, this is the number one issue that we hear year after year after year. And at this point, I would argue, you know, it doesn't matter what political party you're from, the bridge is cancelled, it's done. I'm going to assume the mood really is just get on with it. Yeah, I mean, it's not 10 lanes, but it's eight. We'll accept it. Anything beyond what we have already now, we're okay with the eight. My feeling is we're beyond that debate. I think there mm-hmm. there was a time for that discussion and the community was having that. At this point, we are so many years into this, a decade into this process of folks sitting in gridlock. They just want to see a solution. They take a bridge, a tunnel, or a zip line at this point. <laughs> um, beyond just the tunnel itself, there's going to be some improvements, I'm, I'm told, in regards to overpasses. You can drive through there now, and I'm told there's a, the Steveson Interchange. Uh, there's a new five-lane Steveson Interchange uh, construction that's underway, uh, and that, I think, is going to be completed in 2025. On the Delta side, I'm assuming there's going to be some other projects as well beyond just the tunnel. Uh, the scope of the tunnel project is smaller than the previous uh, council project. The, the previous project, which was a bridge project, it was more of a corridor improvement project from Bridgeport Station uh, down Highway 99 through White Rock. Mm-hmm. Uh, this project really is just from the Steveston interchange to the uh, Highway 17A uh, interchange where we're going to see some improvements. One area where our council has been uh, led by Mayor Harvey has been uh, vocal in working with the province uh, is is trying to reestablish a second uh, exit out of Ladner through the River Road uh, exit, mm-hmm. uh, reestablishing that connection as an overpass. You know, when we put these multi-billion-dollar uh, projects into communities, I think it's really important that we're ensuring there's community benefits, especially at a time where we're talking about asking cities to contribute to, to the ongoing housing uh, crisis by building more supply. Uh, we need uh, support from senior government in ensuring the infrastructure is there to support future growth. So that is something that we're actively working on. Is what you're seeing in regards to this project and its scope, is there, 
will it be able to handle future growth? And what I mean by that is, you know, forget about South Delta just for a moment. And you're seeing expansion there with significant development in Tawasson First Nations. And it's not just the shopping mall. It's the fact that you see a tremendous amount of housing going up, more people moving there. Uh, you have, uh, you know, more development in, in the community of Tawasson. They've got a massive development there in Southlands. Now, add to that, and I think it's very important here, is the port wishes to expand significantly. Add to that the Tawasson First Nations and their desire to build more uh, commercial properties there, more warehouse space, which means even more trucks coming and going. There's always been rumors of a free trade zone there, potentially. Um, I mean, are we building for f- the future? It seems to me, and it's not just necessarily the eight lanes, but just generally, it t- says to me that we're still not building for the present or the future. When you add to that the growth of South Surrey and Langley, even more so than probably South Delta, that we're not really building for the future. Yeah, and it's more than just housing. I mean, let, let's be clear, the, the region, we're going to have a million more people in this region, and a lot of that growth is going to be concentrated south of the Fraser in Richmond, Delta, Surrey. Uh, but it's more than just that. The Massey Tunnel is a is a federal trade corridor. This is uh, the main route that will be used from, from uh, trucks uh, coming from the, the Delta port, uh, as, which, as you mentioned, is going to be doubling its capacity in the years to come. Uh, Tawasson Ferry Terminal, the largest ferry terminal in the province, uh, carrying uh, goods and, and people from Vancouver Island, uh, the Blaine Border Crossing. Uh, all of that traffic goes through Highway 99. So I, I would certainly say it's in the national interest that this trade corridor uh, move forward and have that capacity. And, and I know that uh, the province is also looking to the federal government to commit to some funding in order to make that happen. How confident are you this thing will be good to go and ready to go for folks by 2030 as, as, as being promised right now? The way that infrastructure projects are going across the board right now, it certainly makes me nervous. I'm seeing project after project see uh, cost escalations and delays. Uh, We've been waiting uh, since 2013 and actually before that, when you consider engagement, they're saying 2030. Um, You you know, that's uh, we've got another decade to go, not to mention the impacts of construction and post-construction. I mean, this is a big project. So I'm an optimist, Jazz. I'm trying to remain optimistic, but certainly this does seem like the project that never ends for our community. Yeah, that's for sure. Dylan, thank you for your time today. Jazz, thank you. Hey, welcome back to the show. Well, a new poll from the Angus Reid Institute has found that more than a half of Canadians think Justin Trudeau should step down as a leader of the Liberal Party before the next federal election. And even among Liberal voters, almost half of respondents said he should turn the party leadership over to a new fresh face, although there was no clear consensus on whom uh, that should be. The uh, poll was conducted online this month among just over 1,800 Canadian adults, uh, which found 57% thought Mr. Trudeau should step down before the next election, which is scheduled for 2025. Well, joining me now to talk a little bit about federal leadership is Keith Baldry, Global BC's Legislative Bureau Chief. Good afternoon, Keith. Hey, Jess. Hi. So what do, what do you take away from this poll? Oh, yeah, more bad news. Well, a couple of things. More bad news for Justin Trudeau. I mean, the things just keep, the hole he's in just keeps getting deeper and deeper. And that's that you mentioned. One of the key findings, I think, is now liberal voters themselves, almost half, 41%, say it's time for him to go. So he's got a problem from within. Um, and But there's no heir apparent. Christopher Freeland scores best on name recognition, slightly better on who would make a better leader when compared to uh, other candidates whose names were forward, Mark Carney, the former Bank of Canada governor, Melanie Jolie, um, Anita Anand, France-Philippe uh, Champagne, all from cabinet were names, but none of them scored particularly well. So there's no heir apparent. There's no one waiting in the wings who's the obvious savior of the liberals. 
But they've got a problem with uh, the Trudeau brand. It's obviously in serious trouble. Even here in B.C., where the Conservatives had a long time trying to make a mark, they've got a significant lead now in the popular vote in B.C., and, and Trudeau's numbers are down considerably. The one, I wouldn't even call it a positive, but it's just one glimmer for Mr. Trudeau, is that no one, no political leader on the national stage is viewed particularly with a lot of respect by voters. I mean, it does seem to be this this dearth of leadership on the national stage. Pierre Poliev, and on the question of who be, who is the best would make the best prime minister, Pierre Poliev, the Conservatives in first place, but just thirty percent, sixteen percent for Trudeau, fifteen percent for Jagmeet Singh. I mean, these are very low numbers for the pr- people who are vying to be prime minister. So there's no real um, affection for any uh, national leader. Uh, the Conservatives have an eleven point lead in the opinion in the. Uh, um, amongst decided voters. There's no question if an election were held today, you'd have to favor the Conservatives winning probably a majority. I don't think that's clear considering the Liberals still have a lead in Quebec and in Atlantic Canada, which can, which can be a buffer to a majority being formed by someone else. But nevertheless, uh, it would seem it's a, an election right now for the Conservatives to lose. But Polia's own numbers, his, his disapproval reading consider, continues to be very high, still hovering around 50%. So no political, what strikes me again, no political leader is really viewed with a lot of respect on the federal level. And you start putting the federal leaders on every party mm-hmm. up against provincial um, premiers, for example. And whether you agree with them or not, I would say David Eby in BC, Daniel Smith in Alberta, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan, our new premier in, in Manitoba, Francois Legault in Quebec, and Doug, Doug Ford, even Doug Ford's problems with the Greenbelt in Ontario notwithstanding. All those premiers seem to be held with higher approval ratings for the most part than anyone on the federal, federal stage. And that's, that's uh, troubling, but also puzzling. Yeah, it's interesting that generally it's the other way around. You always think that, look, um, the, the grown-ups are at the federal level and whoever is prime minister um, has a certain amount of gravitas compared to sometimes the odd provincial leader that uh, creates more news, not good news. But you're right in this case. It seems like you got grown-ups on the provincial side and um, most people are not happy with what they see federally. And I think you're a very good point. Mr. Polyev uh, appears to be headed towards a majority at this point, and things, of course, can change, uh, but with only a 30% uh, in regards to who would make the best prime minister, that's, that, that, those numbers aren't huge at all. And he's been on this show, I think, five or six times now. He's just on last week, and he's a, an effective communicator. But I think what I find with him is that, yes, he knows his his lines, he delivers them well, but it's the case of where I feel you don't see a lot of humanity coming from him, not a lot of empathy. And I don't no. think he's a bad human being or anything. I just think he has a has difficulty sort of in an era where I once I told a political leader, we're in an era where EQ matters just as much as IQ. And I yeah. think that's part of the challenge. It's just connecting with that voter. Well, you know, the, the, this poll and other polls are, are setting the, the table here for something, and that is – the Liberals have a huge leadership problem with the current leader. If he walks away, though, because the Conservative vote doesn't seem to be entrenched or that universal, and it's not wrapped around a popular leader, that suggests it's vulnerable, and that the Liberals conceivably could bring some of that vote back. You know, they've lost 10% of their voters to the Conservatives since the last election, uh, even more than that to the NDP. If they can bring those voters back just from the, to the parties they've lost votes to, that would put them in a, a, a driver's seat to win an election again. Now, I'm not sure they can do that with Christian Freeland or Mark Carney or anyone else, but 
perhaps the argument be made that anyone else can do a, a better has a better chance of doing that of, of taking back that disaffected liberal vote who's gone elsewhere under the dying, what could be the dying embers of the Trudeau leadership. Now, Trudeau's notoriously stubborn. He's a good campaigner. We have yet to see the liberal counterattack offensive. What's going to come on the on the airways with a huge attack ad against Pierre Polyev at some point in the next year or so. Um, perhaps that will drive the conservative numbers down. Maybe the argument is that they've peaked too early. That argument, we've seen that before in political circles. But um, no, this poll, by and large, very troubling for the liberals, very uh, pleasing for the conservatives with an asterisk that they're vulnerable. They're not there yet with a cemented lead over the the liberals. They are vulnerable if the liberals can change the channel. Yeah, and, and you know, partially, a lot of this may be out of Mr. Trudeau's hands. We yesterday had Michael Levy on. We were talking about inflation and the numbers nationally are at about 3, 3.8% here in British Columbia. They're down to 3.3%. You know, give it six months if they're all headed in the right direction for Mr. Trudeau and interest rates start coming down. There may be a different mood in this country. Now, is that enough to make up for the huge difference between the support for Mr. Trudeau and Mr. Mr. Polly? Perhaps not. But I think the mood of this country, one assumes, will be a little bit better. A lot of people are hurting right now when it comes to affordability. Things may change in six months to nine months, well, right? Yeah. I mean, if the interest rates go down, inflation goes down, cost of living becomes a little more palatable for people. Having said that, I still think housing is going to be out of reach of people. Rents are not going to go down big time between now and the next election. But perhaps some of that frustration and anger that may be spilling over against the government may dissipate a bit. And again, if you couple that with with uh, an, you know, an aggressive campaign against Poliev's vulnerabilities, that might be enough to change uh, the channel. But I think that's also a bit of wishful thinking for the liberals. I mean, that's the best-case scenario for them, mm-hmm. uh, is that everything has to break their way between now and 2025. And that's a lot of breaking a <laughs> lot of different ways. And uh, it's, it's a tough hole to get out of. All right, well, let's focus on the longest-running soap opera in B.C., the days of our policing lives, of course, the Surrey policing situation. Our, my guest is uh, Keith Baldry, Global B.C.'s Legislative Bureau Chief. Keith, uh, the Police Act legislation was introduced a couple of days ago uh, by Mark Mike Farnworth, our Solicitor General. He's going to join us at uh, 5 o'clock, talk a little bit about his thinking, but, uh, you know, you're a long-time observer in all of this. Uh, where are we going from here in regards to Surrey? Is this legislation the be-all and end-all, or do you think there's going to be more coming? No, I think this is it. Um, this is, you know, all along the Police Act has been the guiding the tool here for Mike Farnworth, and I've had conversations with Farnworth for well more than a year about the sections of the Police Act he was relying upon to take the actions he was doing. And I kept wondering, are you sure this is the language in the Police Act is clear enough. All it did was require the minister to ensure there was adequate levels of policing in municipalities. and um, But there was no roadmap of what to do in case that wasn't the case. But now there's a roadmap. And it was contained in the amendments to the Police Act that were tabled on Monday. Uh, there is a number of amendments that affect other municipalities if they want to do something like this. But there is a specific section, Section 7, which specifically is titled Transition City of Surrey. And in there are one, two, three, four, five different specific directions and options for a minister to take to ensure what the police situation is going to be like in Surrey. That was not in the Police Act up until now. Now it's a specific reference on almost half a different, uh, half a dozen references of clear language that if it ever gets in front of a, a, a judge or a court, they're going to look at this document that has very clear language specifically about one municipality. Unlike the, the, 
the police act as it exists now. Now, this this bill that was introduced Monday just passed second reading moments ago in the House, fifty four twenty seven was the vote. No mm-hmm. drama there. It was fait accompli, which suggests to me this is moving very rapidly. This will become law fairly quickly. It'll, re- uh, it'll go through the committee stage, third reading, I think in a matter of days, uh, l- probably less than a week, re- achieve, uh, receive royal assent. And then even before Surrey gets its judicial review challenge in front of a judge, this will be the law. And that's what's going to be in front of the judge when that he, take, he or she takes a look at the application for judicial review. The Old Police Act, I think, was vague enough, maybe Surrey had a, a shot at it, but this police act, which is much tougher and clear language, makes it much harder for Surrey uh, to uh, to make its argument. Yesterday, David Eby, the Premier, sounded more conciliatory than Mike Farnworth has. Farnworth and Brenda Locke engaged in a sort of battle, locking horns for a long time now. Eby said, hey, the decision's been made, now's the time to sit down, let's talk about it. We understand your concerns about costs and implementation which to me is a signal maybe there's a little more to be had for Syria. I don't think there's going to be any more money, but maybe some sort of other resources could be brought to bear to make the path to Surrey Police Services a little less rocky than what Surrey Council thinks it's going to be. No, um, Brenda Locke is on the police board, and, you know, the, the, the government could take her off if uh, she is still intransigent and, and, you know, causing trouble. Or Take the entire board off. Yeah. I mean, the next section in this bill, fall in the Surrey section, is a section specifically about the Surrey Police Board in its entirety, which gives the government the power basically to replace the Surrey Police Board with an administrator. So, so let, let's say shot they, across the bow there. Yeah, but but the money still has to come from Surrey taxpayers, and does it not need approval from Surrey City Hall, City Council, which is still Brenda Locke and her majority, or will there be this administrator that can just say, "Here are the changes. We need this amount of money. It's approved." That they don't need a, a democrat democratically elected council uh, to to get in the way and say, "No, we turn down the funding request." Well, the money aspect is not going to... The provincial government offered $150 million, which is sort of a precedent to offer municipalities. But I don't think you're going to get a government too far into the weeds of a municipality's tax challenges or or fine print funding uh, requirements. But and what, that's but not but what Keith, the judge is going to look at either. Yeah, but what I mean is if... if the Surrey Police Service says, look, we need $45 million for this year for hiring more recruits and, and, and running the shop. And Surrey, uh, Surrey Council says, no, you're not going to get that money. It stops everything dead on the tracks. Can technically Brenda Locke and her majority do that? And if, if, they, if they can, what is the remedy for the provincial government to say, wait a minute here, you're going too far. You have to approve this. Like, How, how do you compel Brenda Locke and her majority to actually approve funding requests from the Surrey Police Service? Well, I guess we're going to see how that's actually going to work in in real time. I mean, the Surrey right now on its website has posted a surplus, uh, or it sits around and underfunding of police services. So, their numbers don't square. Neither does the government's numbers square. Neither side, as I've put out before, will show their work. They keep throwing numbers out. The government throws 150 million dollars out without showing how does that solve Surrey's problems. Surrey counters with a $450 number or one councillor's $760 million number or whatever without showing how do you come up with that number. So, you know, municipalities fund police all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it funds police to the level that Surrey Police Services thinks it needs, might, that might be a different question. But 
I don't think you're going to see Surrey necessarily stop funding the police. And if that's the situation, the government's always got some extraordinary powers at its disposal. Yeah, Wallace might farm with that question at five o'clock when he's uh, yeah. when he's joining us. It's amazing. It's amazing that we've gotten to this point five years into this, and we're still fighting. And it's kind of interesting, Surrey. The size of Surrey, yet you have smaller, much smaller communities like New Westminster, Port Moody, uh, Delta. All of them have municipal police forces, and they're moving along, and they're quite happy with them, to my understanding. Yet here you have a community with 600,000 people and they're still fighting it, number one. Well, yeah, the rest of that bill is about other municipalities. It's a signal they, they've picked up intelligence and conversations with mayors that other municipalities are thinking about moving away from the RCMP to a municipal police force. And the other sections in this bill are to prevent what's happened with Surrey, which is, you know, going at it alone, not telling the government what it's doing or not sharing information with each other, getting to the point of no return, and then reversing itself with a new council. All that's going to be presumably fixed with these other amendments that are not specific to Surrey. Keith, thank you. All right, anytime. Well, this week, British Columbia Solicitor General Mike Farnworth introduced legislation that will require the city of Surrey to provide policing with a municipal force. The update in the Police Act also gives the province the authority to cancel the RCMP contract uh, it has with Surrey. Of course, the proposed legislation comes just days after the city of Surrey filed a petition in court asking for a judicial review of the BC government's directive that it must continue its transition to the local police force. Well, the man in the middle of all this, of course, is Mike Farnworth. He's the Minister of Public Safety and the Solicitor General, and he joins us. Now, Minister, thank you for your time today. My pleasure. Uh, Let's uh, just get an update, I guess. You introduced the Police Act. Uh, Just to confirm, is second reading uh, done as of today? Yes, yeah, second reading's done. Uh, We had the the vote uh, on second reading, and so now it goes to committee stage. And then after that, when will it receive royal assent if it, if it does move forward? Um, so once committee stage is done, then we have what's called third reading, uh, and then uh, royal assent is given after that. And usually uh, it's given fairly quickly. Um, we're here for a seven-week session. Um, it takes, you know, usually at least probably twice the session we'll do royal assent for a number of bills. So I expect this one would be in the first batch of bills that gets royal assent. So technically, probably, well, not technically, but could be done by the end of this month, potentially. Potentially, yeah, yeah. Yep. No, it uh, it could be done by the end of the month. Oh, good. I just want to get the timeline uh, on that. Uh, what compelled you this week to say, you know what, we are going to bring this legislation? I know you had talked about doing so. What was sort of the the camel? The, the you know, which what was it for you uh, where the, the, where you thought, you know what, this has gone too far. We have to move forward with this legislation. Um, there's a number of things I indicated back in July uh, that I'd be bringing forward legislation that uh, I don't believe any solicitor general or government should have to go through this again. This is, uh, in my view, a mess, uh, and we're trying to fix it, and that uh, we need to have the legislation uh, in place. And on top of that, I think the the the, the inability of the city of Surrey uh, to be able to move forward on the, the transition and saying we don't accept the decision uh, again, I think contributed to, you know, the, we're bringing in legislation. Uh, people want this issue put to bed. They want it dealt with. They want it fixed. And that's what we're going to do. Uh, and it's crucial that, that there is a clear clarity and path on how we proceed forward mm-hmm. uh, in the future for any other municipality that wants to uh, potentially go down the path. And just to confirm here, not that you're going to do this, but if you have the power, if, if needed, to replace the, the Surrey Police Board, if, if required. We have, one of the sections does um, um, allow um, 
solicitor general, and obviously it would be um, on advice from the, uh, the director of police services and then cabinet to be able to say, you know what, we're putting in an administrator. Um, now, if um, no, you, you've introduced this police act, it passes, it receives royal assent. At the end of the day, this very police service, the municipal force, still needs to be funded, uh, and that is approval generally required from the city of Surrey, and these are elected officials. Ms. Locke and her majority council could easily say, okay, the rules are in, but we're not going to vote, we're not going to support continued funding of the SPS because there's going to be a need for funding once a year, twice a year, whatever it may be. What would convince them or compel them to support uh, continued funding of the SPS, even if they, uh, if you've brought this legislation in, they may still oppose it. They they feel they may be doing the right thing in their mind. Uh, what? How could you compel them to support uh, budgets for the SPS? Uh, two things. One, um, it's no longer just a decision uh, by myself as minister, as a statutory decision maker. It is now the law in legislation and that they are required to provide safe and effective policing, and that it must be uh, the Surrey Police Service. So, um, you know, it, it's, it's kind of there in black and white. Uh, there's would have no choice in that matter. But it, let's just say, worst case scenario, you would have other authority. They're breaking the laws, what you're saying. If they don't do it, you still have the authority to, to make sure that funding for the SPS moving forward will be there and it will be consistent. There has, there has to be safe and effective policing and it will be the Surrey Police Service and um, the tools will be there to do that. Okay. Now, the Police Complaints Commissioner raised some concerns in regards to the, some of the changes in the Police Act. Uh, uh, how do you take it? And I understand you may have, your office may have already spoken to the Police Complaints Commissioner on this? Yeah, we were notified yesterday, late yesterday, that the Police, uh, police Complaints Commissioner had a, a concern about Section 8. And it was uh, to do with intent in, in terms of oversight, and I think it, in terms of if it came into effect and if you had an administrator, uh, would that potentially possibly remove, I think, um, his office from oversight of, of, of what happens? And that was never our intention. Um, we, um, our legal advisors, uh, I talked about it and we came back and they talked to him what would be a workable solution. And so there's a, a small amendment uh, taking place to that section that removes what would have been a, um, a subsection 5, and that's been removed, and that addresses his concerns. And that motion has already been tabled in the legislature and will be part and part of the committee uh, debate uh, when we when we get to that. And I just want to get back to uh, the um, the issue with, with the city. Now, the city, of course, the legislation that you've introduced comes just days after the city of Surrey filed a petition in court asking for a judicial review of the BC government directive. Once this is passed, this, these police act changes, uh, in your mind, is that court case irrelevant? Whatever the judgment may be, whatever the process is, wherever it goes, in your mind, the legislation is clear? The legislation absolutely is clear, but the city has decided to initiate this, this judicial review. Um, you know, it, it, they clearly waited quite some time to do it. Um, you know, and my own view is, as I've said, I think this is a, a waste of, uh, of taxpayers' money on a decision that's already been made. Mm-hmm. But that's their that's their choice. Um, you know, we uh, as government still continue to govern, and that's why the legislation has been brought forward, tabled. Uh, and will be passed in the, the next few weeks. Do you think the provincial government during the past administration, the previous uh, city council perhaps, uh, not saying more due diligence from the province, but to a certain degree 
should have been involved in a much deeper way uh, from the from the start because you're relying on that council's desire to get things done and their numbers when perhaps the provincial government may may have wanted to 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 get involved right from day one and have a person just earmarked for dealing with just that issue. Is that a bit of a lesson learned for the province as well? Uh, well, that's why we've made the changes that we have, and it is so that the, the minister has the ability to be involved uh, much earlier. Uh, that it's cl- and also make it clear on paths and steps that uh, do need to happen if a local government wants to uh, wants to transition to another police model. It's also very clear on what the minister cannot do as well, mm-hmm. which is also important uh, because there's a lot of talk about local autonomy, and we do I do respect that. Um, and so those measures are in place, along with such things as being able to access documents uh, to assist in making a decision without having to sign a non-disclosure agreement. You know, which added all kinds of complexities and, and delays to the uh, to the process. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, the other is that if a local government is, wants to make a decision to change the model, there's no going back. You know, you make that decision; um, it's uh, it is a permanent decision. And that's that's important uh, as, as well because I don't want any government to go through this again. Uh, the city of Surrey says that over a 10-year uh, process with, with with the switch from RCMP to municipal police force, there's about $460 million in unfunded liability there for the community, number one, and that doesn't include capital costs. Um, number one, do you believe those numbers? Number two, is there room uh, for further funding from the provincial government beyond the $150 million the province has already promised? On, let me address the second part first. No, there is no more money. It is $150 million is on the table. And that $150 million relates to your first part of what you just asked me, which is we base that on the city of Surrey's own numbers in terms of the differential between moving to the uh, Surrey Police Service from the RCMP, which uh, we verified their numbers was about $30 million uh, a year. And so we said, okay, um, 150 is equal to $30 million uh, a year, and that's uh, five years. And we've also indicated to them a willingness to, um, you know, to how we structure that uh, that would work for them. So uh, that's what that's based on. I've heard all different kinds of numbers get, you know, thrown about out there. But the reality is, is we verified their numbers from their first report to us, and that's how we came up with 150, and it is 150, and it will not be more than that. So is there room still to work together with them in regards to just getting this done? If money's not going to be on the table, more money's not going to be on the table, is there still an opportunity? I know the Premier talked about being, it was quite conciliatory in his comments. Is there a point where all sides can get together and start talking this stuff through? There, there has actually been a lot of work underway already, uh, and have re- the, my, the special advisor, Jessica McDonald, mm-hmm. has been doing um, incredible work, working with the staff at Surrey, working with the Surrey RCMP, working with the, uh, the various levels uh, at the federal level that are all involved in this, a uh, number of, of tripartite meetings to deal with the issues and to get things moving. Um, what really needs to happen is for the Surrey Council to understand, look, this is going ahead. Um, staff are working. Um, my ministry staff are working. The RCMP are working, and we need to get this done. Minister, I know you've had a very busy uh, early part of this week, and and uh, and uh, we've been trying to get uh, you on the show. Really appreciate you making time for us and for our listeners as well. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. 
Well, you may recall on Monday, uh, Housing Minister Ravi Kela was on this show. Uh, we we're talking about, of course, um, the provincial ban on most short-term rentals that aren't uh, an operator's principal residence. Uh, the government said they're going to increase fines and create new enforcement units to crack down on rule breakers, uh, but the in- uh, impact is significant. Uh, and, of course, the desire is, after, is to go after people who have multiple, multiple units uh, and turn it into a business, or as a premier, I think, was saying, uh, sort of many hotel operators. But there's many folks uh, who uh, rent out one facility, and they're impacted as well. Joining me now is Deborah Sheets. She is an Airbnb owner, and uh, she's kind enough to join us to talk a little bit about the impact uh, she is going through and having to deal with. Deborah, thank you for joining us today. Yeah, thank you, Jazz. As a former MLA, I'm sure you have a very interesting perspective on this legislation. <laughs> yeah, you know, we, we've spent a lot of time mm-hmm. uh, talking about this issue, not just with MLAs, but also with um, elected officials here locally in Vancouver and on and in Victoria. First of all, you know, for you personally, what was going through your on, mind on Monday when you heard this legislation? Oh my gosh, I'm so concerned. We're going to be so impacted. And honestly, I, I own a a suite in the Janian building. There's 121 units, and I know most of the owners were small-time investors. We followed all the rules. It was the city that decided to to make this a uh, transient occupancy building, and the building was built in 1891 as a hotel, and all the units in it are less than 300 square feet. Um, it's really designed for short-term stays with very little parking, hardly any storage. Mm-hmm. And um, people choose to stay there sometimes for a few months, but generally it's quite small. And, Despite the small space, though, it's still, they sell the units sell for like 450000 And I honestly don't think that entry level, um, you, know, you can't rent a unit at current high interest rates for enough money to even cover the mortgage, the strata fees, the property taxes all of the costs that come with owning it. Hmm. So, when you made the decision to purchase it, was it a desire to, to rent it out on Airbnb then? It was. I was planning for my um, retirement, and I'm a dual citizen, and I'm not allowed to have tax-free savings accounts. And people seem to really scapegoat and think that STR owners are greedy, greedy people, but I, I'm 66. Like I have worked my whole life. I've saved my money. I'm a renter myself. Mm-hmm. And my unit is small enough that it can't be my principal residence and I, in order for me to do a STR. So I'm going to have to turn it into a long term. I'm not sure I'll find anyone that can rent it at a, at a price point that will cover my mortgage. Mm-hmm. So I feel like this legislation is essentially confiscating owners' rights. They're taking away a legal right of, that they gave to us to use our property as it was approved when we bought it. They're offering no compensation and underlying all this, if you look at the reports that the city and the legislature are relying upon of um, housing, the, that report was funded by the Hotel Association. They've been lobbying the government at all levels to shut down STRs, mm-hmm. which cost visitors half the price of hotels. They want to create a monopoly for multinational hotels, which is a Goliath compared to you know, small-time owner investors like myself. Mm-hmm. I'm just an owner who's worked all her life to be able to to do this investment. You would agree that those that have, you know, 5, 10, 15 properties that they're renting out, in some cases even renting out a, 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 an apartment, 
uh, let's say for two thousand dollars a month, and then thinking they can make three or four thousand dollars just Airbnb it. Like that was a practice in your mind that probably we have to be stopping or should be stopping if there's ten or fifteen yeah. properties that these folks own, and that that in your mind is the right thing to do. Yeah, I I, I honestly don't know anyone who owns that many properties. Quite mm-hmm. honestly, there are property managers who have individual owners who turn their property over to a property manager because. You know, they're working full time. They can't be there to do check-ins and check-outs and all that kind of thing. I know of no one that owns like 15 properties that's doing short-term rentals. It may look that way when you look at cohost.ca. She has 49 properties. She's a manager. They're individual owners. Mm-hmm. It's not It's not like she owns all those properties. She's just supporting a business uh, investment Um I do want to say that if the government does cancel people's rights like this without compensation, like what's it going to mean? This is the kind of thing that you don't expect to have happen in a Western democracy. I haven't seen any discussion. This has been very rapid decision making by Canadians who've been very diligent in buying business licenses and adhering to all the taxes and everything that's been required of us. And, you know, can I say one more thing? Yeah, go ahead. You know, one of my owners noted that her Airbnb suite helps her afford the mortgage on her condo, which is her primary residence, Mm -hmm. another condo that she lives in. These new rules are devastating to her. They're going to push her and her 72-year-old husband out of their home because she counts on that income for her mortgage. So isn't that the opposite of what this legislation is trying to achieve? It's kind of a zero-sum game. Do you think it, it should have been just focused on those folks? Like, I, and I'm not just people who own 10 or 15 condos. What I meant but was, was folks that sometimes will rent 10 apartments and then mm-hmm. Airbnb those, even though they don't own the apartments. They've got enough oh. enough of a business where, let's say, you rent an apartment for 2000 and you can make $3,500 yeah. $3, a month in just Airbnb income. So that's your profit of $1,500. Now, you multiply that over five, seven, ten properties. It's quite the business. And that's been happening yeah. as well. And I, don't, I know you're not advocating for that because that's not who you are and what you've been talking about. But you think right. there should have been perhaps more uh, specific rules and legislation focusing on people like yourself who – Mm -hmm. are running a business, but you're running a business to get through your retirement uh, and you've you've worked it and thought it through. It's not, you're not, you're not opening to have five of these. This is the one that's going to help you get through your retirement. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I don't really think arbitrage is a a good situation. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering whether, like, I guess one idea I had was that maybe a possible solution is to restrict the number of STR licenses as well, because there really are only 627 licensed businesses at present, that's not a huge market, actually. I mean, there's a possibility of 1,600 that are legally, like, allowed to have transient occupancy. Mm -hmm. Um, Some of those would be appropriate for longer-term residences. I would argue that some buildings aren't. They were built to be short-term rentals. The city decided that, and now they're trying to backtrack. Why not restrict the number of STR licenses to, like, 600 and not go above that? And then the other thousand residences are available, you know, hopefully they're residences that are appropriate for families. Um, you know, but I, I think also there are some serious questions about the legality of these clauses. And I think that this could end up really costing the province and the city a lot of money if they go forward with this, quite honestly. Like it's a precedent. It's eliminating non-conforming use and offering no compensation for the economic impact. Yeah. And people have been doing this legally. So now when they downzone, like normally people are allowed to continue. It's called grandfathering. 
But this legislation doesn't allow for that. And it was written by the BC Hotel Association. Yeah. It's pretty much adopted as they lobbied it. Well, we will, I don't think it was well considered. Well, we'll have the minister on again to chat a little bit more about this legislation. Mm. legislation. He was on Monday. Definitely we'll have him back as well. Deborah, we've run out yeah. of time. Thank you so much for your, okay. your thoughts and comments. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much. Have All a good evening. You too. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.